Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you in this fine holiday season? I'm doing great. I think like uh, everybody else, just kind of rushing along to get everything ready and prepared as we not only head for the holidays, but the end of 2023, um, an ending that I am probably very much looking forward to. <laughs> looking forward to start fresh in 2024. How are you doing today, sir? I do find myself trying and struggling to keep up with the the rhythms of the season, um, and uh, not not to put too fine a point on that. Uh, it is in fact very apropos to the the theme of today's episode, the rhythms of uh, modern living, as it were, uh, because today we are going to talk about Mr. Jacques Tati, a French filmmaker, uh, who. I mean, if you if you're I had I I was introduced to Jack Tati about uh, a year ago or so, uh, and my first immediate thought was, I wonder if this is I wonder if Rowan Atkinson saw Mr. Bean or saw uh, any of Jack Tati's movies, and sure enough, he was like, yeah, I basically just ripped off Jack Tati when I was doing Mr. Bean. So uh, uh, he's a very uh, he comes from a very uh, you know physical comedy slapstick uh, you know clown type stuff uh and uh as i have been finding out uh this year that stuff has been increasingly more stuff that i've been finding myself into uh which i wouldn't have necessarily called but it's uh but but i find it his stuff to be generally uh delightful at a at a minimum if not just like like bizarrely genius at a, at a top level but uh we'll get into all that i'm sure chris uh prior to today's episode what had been sort of your you know experience with mr tati um so probably a little longer than yours but not like incredibly like it's not something that tati is not someone that i have long admired uh you know throughout my life i probably Similar to you, I mean, my first exposure to this type of stuff uh, outside of Keaton and Chaplin and and, and Lloyd, which I, I think we should talk about the fundamental differences between their style of filmmaking and Jacques Tati's, is probably Mr. Bean as well, which I was a huge fan of growing up. Um, it's probably been about, I'd say, 10 years. Um, and most of my experience with Tati um, revolved really just around one film, and it's going to be the first film that we're going to talk about. Um, but similar to you, um, it's going to be interesting to talk about these films, um, not only in terms of, I think, his his filmmaking genius, which I, I would argue is probably unassailable, uh, um, but uh, how that interweaves with kind of the connection uh, that anybody might have with these films, which I think is maybe somewhat of a different question. So what one of the things I found interesting, you make a great point about how this really accurately reflects kind of some of the rhythms that we're both going through as we try to wrap up the year and the holidays and families and, and, and things like, like that. Um, we kind of struggled to find a topic for the end of the year. We had a couple of things bouncing around and it was just kind of, um, I, this also counts as a criterion catch up for me because I have the Tati box set and I had not gone through it yet um, besides one film. Uh, so it was an opportunity to kind of catch up on, on those things. So a lot of happy accidents kind of bringing this together to close out 2023 with, uh, on a slightly lighter note than maybe we typically might've done in the past. Although I think we did gremlins last year, so yeah. <laughs> maybe it hasn't been as somber as my brain recollects. 
Well, and it's funny you mentioned that because I think our initial pitch for our year-end episode was going to be life-affirming movies, um, and mine was going to be a Jacques Tati movie. And I think as we, uh, once we, and then we eventually just pivoted to just doing a Tati episode. And uh, as we'll, yeah, as we'll, as we'll talk about it, uh, the, the there's the. <laughs> The, the movies of Jacques Tati are delightful and fun and often funny. Um, but there is, there is, there is a deeper thing going on in a lot of his stuff that is, I would describe maybe not exactly what I would call life affirming, um, in a way that would have made for a rather interesting li- uh, topic for an episode. So I'm glad we actually just pivoted <laughs> to Tati because that's just going to be, uh, its own kettle of fish, so to speak, to talk, uh, to talk about. Yeah. And without giving it away, I will briefly preview 2024 by saying my life affirming movie was going to be something very different that we both wound up saying that we loved. Uh, and we decided to make that a filmmaker episode, which will probably happen in early 2024. So you'll get our life affirming movies one way or another. They'll just be in (laughs) this episode and another episode, and then we'll do a life affirming episode that may have two entirely different films than what we originally intended, which seems to be the way of cinema duel. (laughs) Yeah, that that does happen. And I look forward to you reminding me off mic what that was, (laughs) because I don't remember. (laughs) It was beep. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Yeah. Audio gigs would be a very apropos choice for uh, a Jacques Tati episode uh, in a world where I had more time on my hands. But uh, living in the world that we do live in, why don't we get to our first uh, movie for today's episode, which is Mon Angle. I'm going to go with Mon Uncle because I'm not going to be able to get that twirl of the tongue like you can, John. Um, I'm going to read from the letterbox summary just to kind of describe what this film is ostensibly about. Genial, bumbling Monsieur Hulot loves his top floor apartment in a grimy corner of the city and cannot fathom why his sister's family has moved to the suburbs. Their house is an ultra-modern nightmare, which Hulot only visits for the sake of stealing away his rambunctious young nephew. Hulot's sister, however, wants to win him over to her new way of life and conspires to set him up with a wife and job. Um, and as I read that, one of the things that's interesting about Mon Uncle and about the majority, I think, of Tati's films, certainly every film from Mon Uncle forward, is uh, there's an impression of a through line and a plot when I read that description. Um, and in, in this case, that is true. It is the, though the, the barest thread of a through line and a plot. Um, this is the second appearance of Tati's famous um, narrative character, uh, Michel Hulot, who premiered in 1953 in uh, Michel Hulot's Holiday, uh, which was a delightful film uh, that we'll maybe talk about a little bit when we do recommendations. Um, that was in 1953. This is five years later. This is ostensibly Tati's first kind of true color film. 
although he had experimented with color in his first uh, directing feature, uh, Joie de Fête. Um, this is this is though very much a color film. It is also very much a film about um, consumerism um, and the modern trappings of technology and how that kind of contrasts to a more I don't want to say rural ray of life, but a more simple um, kind of um, traditional way of life. Tati kind of navigates these two worlds in very much the same way. He is a he is very much kind of from the French clown school. It, it's like Slightly bumbling, slightly confused, but always polite, um, always pleasant, um, always trying to make the best of whatever situation he happens to find himself in. And what I found interesting about this and kind of where I want to start with you, John, in terms of questions is um, it's not so much his actions that dictate kind of everything, but it's the fact that he is very much an, an unarched figure. He is very much the same from beginning to end in this film, and it's the it's the scenario that he's in that kind of changes and, and, and causes the, the 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 confusion and kind of chaotic comedic dis- destruction. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit about Tati's Hulo persona. It's a very different type of silent comedy than say like a Chapman or a Keaton um not least of which because Tati is very much attuned to sound even if he's not attuned to dialogue um in his his films so I wanted to just like let's just come right out and talk a little bit about Hugh Lowe as a character versus Chaplin and Keaton and 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 how those differences kind of make not only Mon Uncle but Tati films in general the type of comedies that they are well, I, I, my, my first thought about, uh, like, I mean, yes, it's good to invoke, uh, Chaplin and Keaton and stuff because, like, the story goes is that when this film won, uh, the Oscar for best foreign film in the year, like, the only, th- they asked him, like, well, what would you like? And he said the only thing he wanted to do was to meet, you know, Buster Keaton and, <clears throat> and sort of his heroes from, uh, from that school of, uh, so that previous generation of, you know, silent filmmaking. And purportedly, Keaton was, was supposed to have said when he saw Mononclo that, you know, like, this is very much in the tradition of, you know, that kind of movie just, you know, with, with sound as an extra sort of quiver in the arrow. He wouldn't have said that, but that's my interpretation of like what he was trying to say. Um, my, the thing that, across all like all of his uh as far as like the the silent stuff that he's you know modeling his stuff on versus what he brings to it i think is uh his movies are not silent um but they don't aspire to sort of any sort of like naturalism in terms of their sound most movies will do put a lot of effort and a lot of work into creating a soundscape that is uh not noticeable so that it just feels natural and it feels um, like you just have mics on the set, even though that's not true. So I don't want to like, I don't want to diminish the efforts of the people in that part of the film industry, because that's, there's a lot of work that goes into trying, because that's what they're trying to evoke. Right. Um, but in, in Tati's case, like there's basically almost no like set audio ever. And then they just strategically find things that they want to accent by the use of sound effects whether and a lot of times it's like footsteps or uh, a door opening or closing like famously um there's like <clears throat> in this i think it's is it this one or mr hello's holiday when when they open the door in the restaurant there's that one clanging sound and then that one 
I think it's I think it's Mr. Hulu's holiday because it's, yeah, it's Mr. Hulu's holiday. And then when you watch like if you have the Tati box set, every single one of his movies opens with the 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 studio logo for Tati, and it's the it's that door sound effect of the clunk clunk. I mean, hell, when I turned on my my uh, mic setting up here today, I hit the, I have to hit a button to turn on the mic for mute, and it made a sound that I was like, oh, that sounds like a door. <laughs> It, it is again it's the sound of a door opening so like how could that possibly be important but it it those uh, a lot of sound effects in his work tend to resonate for me um and 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 stick in my head in a way that I actually do remember them the thing that i guess as a character i notice is that he is often seeing the effects of modern slash american uh, life encroaching on him wherever he's at, whether he's in his apartment or, or whether in Jour de Fete when he's just a postman, just trying, seeing the seemingly super heroic efforts of the American postman uh, and trying to like keep up with them. Uh, it feels like he's mostly has things like thrust upon him and then he's trying to respond and react to it. Um, he doesn't necessarily have, you know, big important like plot goals of you know trying to save the girl or um you know impress someone he's just sort of like he just sort of wanders around and stuff happens and then he responds to it yeah i think that's like if i were to kind of think about not only the difference but kind of the appeal of hulo as a character and kind of largely tie it to tati's filmography as a whole he's never really driving the narrative right his his comedy doesn't drive narrative like Chaplin or Keaton does. Every stunt and every trick that you see in those films um, are beautiful set pieces of on their own, but they're also kind of helping to drive story forward, right? To drive plot forward. Um, and that's one of the things that took me a little bit of time to acclimate to with with Tati and 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 really Mon Uncle, which which I think is a better film than the previous two. Um, because <clears throat> excuse me. It's starting to move away from. It's starting to move away from dialogue. Um, we can talk about Joie de Fête a little bit. Um, it's by far my least favorite of the Tati films I've seen. I think because it is so tied to plot, and it's so tied to dialogue, which is weird because there's really not a lot of plot <laughs> in the film. But there's still an overarching thing that this thing with the modernization of, of the postal service and the and the play that's going on and the subplot about the the uh, carnival guy who kind of has the hots for one of the village women and you know how that that goes back and forth there's a lot going on in terms of dialogue and plot and i think as he gets more silent with each film and as he abandons any type of kind of narrative act structure the films get better and better and better and I think Hulot, as a as an observer of the madness of the surroundings, as opposed to a participant that drives plot forward, I, I think that's where I see the difference in kind of the beauty in the way that he does it. Um, beyond the the point that I think you so adeptly made about his use of sound, which. Chaplin and Keaton did to an extent. I, th I think Chaplin more than Keaton, um, certainly, but um, they did it in service to story again, as opposed to Tati really... We, we, we can talk about a number of things. I mean, 
just in Mon Uncle, his his use of color and his use of, of framing is unbelievable. But that use of sound, like to your point, nothing is really naturalized sound. Everything is is looped and ADR in, in, in post, and he does it to very specific effect, whether it's a, a door opening and closing in Major Hulu's Holiday, or here, like the 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 constant malfunctions and steam that goes on at at the at the hose factory um, and and the wonderful set piece that's there or just the weird things that happen at the dinner party at the house um, he is very keen and very adept at using sound in those instances and I do think it's I do think it's lovely um, I also think and let me let me sound you off on this because this might be a, a, a recurring theme when we talk about the other film as well it's exhausting. <laughs> Yeah. It is exhausting. Uh, both this and the next film, I think, are right at the two-hour mark, which is a little long for comedies, a little long for, I don't want to say silent. It's, it's just weird, non-dialogue-driven comedies. Um, and Tati is so brilliant at stuffing so many jokes and gags into the entire frame. He's he's one of the real comedic directors who I think uses every inch of screen space as opposed to drawing your attention to one thing. He's beautiful at doing like layers of jokes. So something's joking in the front ground and then something is going to joke in the background and then something on the top of the screen is happening and something at the bottom. He There is not a pixel, because <laughs> I watched it on my television set, there is not a pixel spared in terms of his vision and execution for comedy. But it wore me out. And I'll be the first to say, uh, it took me two sittings to finish Mon Uncle. <laughs> uh, it, and some of that can be attributed to just the stress of end of year and things going on. But like, if, if you are not paying active attention, you will miss a lot of stuff. And I'm willing to bet that even stretching it over two sessions so I could really focus on what was happening. I definitely paused and kind of rewound a couple of times in both sessions just to make sure I caught everything. I know I didn't catch everything that probably is going on on those frames. I, I do think that for a movie that, or for a filmography that is largely built in service of, of comedy of making people laugh and uh, they're like in, in, in any of these movies, especially the second one we're going to talk about there's there's going to be a lot of like there is a ton of ink spilled academically about like all of the artistic things going on that are the, all the intentions the the choices and and all, everything that is made that is perhaps much more like intense than you might expect for you know for something that's supposed to be a, a, a comedy right so the thing that you know the thing that I have a thought in the back of my head is as we try and like dig into some of this stuff, which you're absolutely right, uh, can is not is not I would not describe it as a casual watch. At the same time, I would also say that like it is in service of things that will make you laugh. And so if you don't mind like and, and this was true of myself because I um, I went back to some of the reviews when I watched his stuff last year for the first time with basically no context and basically had the same response of like. I don't really know what's happening in any of these shots because it's just so much it's it's a barrage of things happening all in at the same time um that it's very disorienting um and then this and then this for this time around I was like well I, I mean mostly because I was going to be doing you know I knew I was going to be doing a podcast for it this is one of those ones where I felt like the doing the homework is not only like necessary but like actually not just for like a base level enjoyment, but also like actually genuinely helped me focus. Um, uh, even just like reading some like 
basic descriptions of like you know plot summaries or in some cases like having you know additional stuff just sort of there just to sort of say like okay here are the things you can pick up on um just sort of help me anchor me through the viewing experience and then that way um and then uh and then that allowed me to sort of i guess relax a bit when when watching it but uh you're you're for 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 movies that are supposed to, that are that are funny and make you supposed to make you laugh and are from the tradition of very physical comedy very silly things happening um there is a lot of like stuff underneath it that can be a bit daunting i think i, I think his first service is comedy but this is very much a a a movie that kind of winkingly criticizes the emerging, to take Wikipedia's words, the emerging French consumer society. I mean, anyone who'd made this film in another country, you could just take out the word French. This was all happening at the same time in the 50s, the thrill of modernization, um, the thrill of technology kind of trying to alleviate a lot of the mundane chores, right, of, uh, of the suburban person. But the, 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 the story, if there is one here, is uh, the guy who owns the ultra-modern house with his wife and works at the factory, he is so concerned with the keeping up of the Joneses and the putting up appearances that he does it at the detriment of his son, who is uh, wild and rambunctious and is kind of rebelling and only seems to have love for Hulot, who is kind of like his caretaker during the day, takes him out, you know, gets him riled up, gets him his exercise and brings him home. Um, and through a whole bunch of visual gags that kind of play on, oh, look, you know, consumerism and and keeping up with the Joneses is kind of ridiculous. And look at how nice and tranquil the, um, the country life is. Through all of the gags and stuff that happens, we do arrive by the end of the film at the father uh, involuntarily being part of a gag that had been running throughout the movie, finds a connection with his son. Um, and they hold hands as they kind of run off uh, right after I should add literally throwing Hulot into an airport to get rid of him <laughs> because they're so frustrated uh, with his supposed like accident prone uh, antics um, that basically destroyed their house. Um, so, I mean, so there is a through line there, but I don't know that this film for me goes any deeper than that. Um, it certainly is, is hammered out pretty quickly in the first like half hour that the rest of the hour and a half doesn't tell me any more than what the first 15 minutes told me. Like there's not a, a there's not a, a, a change in thematics for me throughout the film. It's just more gags, more gags, all of which are brilliant, all of which are funny, at least the ones that I caught. Um, uh, and it's a gorgeous film to look at. I remember when I was watching it, I sent you a picture of, uh, there's the gag of that, I mean, if, if anyone is a fan of this type of filmmaking, it's Wes Anderson because he literally cribs from Mon Uncle the full shot of the house and you see um, Hugh Lowe through every window traveling up to the top where his room is and then back down again. As and The frame is so perfect and the colors are so perfect. I mean, there are things like that that are wonderful, but am I missing anything? Are there things that deepen the commentary as the film goes on? I mean, I... I think that if you have even sort of like if you go into watching a movie like this with um, I don't know if I'd say this, uh, I, I don't want to be so presumptuous to say that this would be enough context for you to listen to this episode, uh, dear listener. But um, even like a arming yourself with just like, here's a 
here's a con here's sort of the things that he was interested in talking about and then you can go okay i understand the plot and then you can go in and actually enjoy the movie with all the gags and sort of understand what the gags are that hose that just keeps acting up and looking like a sausage or uh you know the 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 terrible fish uh, statue that is uh, spurting out water, uh, you know, and, and malfunctions to hilarious intent. Like that's that's that that was basically how I was able to sort of make sense of it this time this time around. Where I find the most of my joy in his films is from a technical perspective. Like he he loves. This is a guy who you can just tell from. Watch 10 minutes of any of his films, um, especially from Mon Uncle on. This is a guy who loves to execute. He loves to execute a gag. Uh, and he will find the perfect way. Like, there's nothing clunky in any gag in this movie. Um, and that's a two-hour movie. That is literally nonstop. There is not a moment when a gag is not happening on screen, which is something else that's really interesting. There's not a moment of, like, let's pause and catch our breath for a moment and just have a quiet thing. Everything is constantly there for effect, whether it's for laughter or for smile or for like a tender moment at, at the end. And that's one thing that Tati does so beautifully. Um, it, like as tired as I get kind of watching the film, uh, and again, this this could entirely be kind of age and life and everything kind of catching up with me this these past couple of weeks, but it doesn't matter how exhausted you are or how much you're like, when is this movie going to end? His endings are, they might be the most exquisite endings of any filmmaker. They are always beautiful. They always kind of leave you with this like, like oozing warmth in your body. Um, and Mon Uncle does that, like despite the fact that they're throwing Hulo out <laughs> and sending him on an airplane to Paris, which is going to be important when we talk about our next film. Um, just that moment where there's the whistle gag and the guy bumps into the signpost and the father and the son share that moment. And you're seeing them from behind and the son's hand slowly goes and holds his dad's hand the way that he would hold Hulo's hand. Um, it's just it's just beautiful. If this was a visual medium, we could do the equivalent of what we did last time uh, for The Wrong Guy, which was to trade our favorite gags back and forth. It's harder to do <laughs> in an episode like this. Um, but the thing that I definitely clocked the most, um, other than, yes, this is very much uh, uh, a Wes Anderson like totem, I imagine. Uh, is, he, uh, he must fetishize this movie so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the next one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, like the 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 thing that my big my biggest takeaway from all the gags in Mononcle was absolutely the moment at the end where he just after it like and the and the running gag uh, is that uh, these kids are constantly try uh, who just sort of come and go throughout the movie are trying to um, distract people by whistling or yelling or something from a hidden place and then the people look around to try and see what it is and then they run into a pole of some kind a pole an object whatever they're just causing people to bump into each other and the what happens at the end of the movie is that he's with they're trying to get rid of Mr. Hulo and his dad accidentally does the thing that they've been doing this whole time and his kid laugh and they laugh and they hold hands and it's a moment of connection um and it is that that was one that truly stuck with me but like most of the things that happen in this movie or in any jack tati movies is that they're not self-important they not they don't yeah they're not announcing them there's no moment in i can't think of any single moment in a tati movie where someone is announcing himself as the thing that we're going to do in this movie which even in a lot of you know i mean i'm sure that that I'm sure that there are people who do that now, but like that's so not a thing that I'm used to in movies that I watch. Um, 
like uh, uh, currently that someone who's just like I'm going to put an insane amount of effort into having something look the most casual tossed off like like, like well his movies don't look tossed off you can tell if they're planned but like he never telegraphs anything it's just you have to be he draws you in so you actually do have to be paying attention and like watching stuff up uh, watching for uh who people are what they're doing how did what were they doing the last time you saw them and you're you you have to actually um track basically what's happening in the movie or else you're gonna lose it well, you're going to lose it, except, and this is something that I found kind of, this is where I was finally able to kind of settle in a little bit better with the films. You're going to lose the thread of whatever it is that you were just watching, but because of the nature or lack of nature of the plots of these films, it doesn't matter. Like you could zone out and be like, I probably in like the, the 45 seconds to a minute where I zoned out, um, I may have missed like... 15 gags <laughs> because this guy is just is crazy but you don't lose the thread of what's going on you just pick up now with these gags and the point is still made because you're not learning things along the way except like you're picking up on things that may be visual callbacks or like like jokes that run like a through line but there's there's no thematic or narrative arc that you have to worry about missing and once i kind of let go of that like i need to keep going back i missed that line i missed this wait why is that happening now because i missed the joke from 10 seconds before once i kind of let that go i was able to kind of really ease in uh to these films a little bit more and i think um i, I think where i like for Tati as a, uh, uh, as a as a filmmaker as a whole, and I think that our two films that we're talking about today are probably the chief examples of this, is um, how he manages to like that that the specificity of how he frames his shots uh, and how he designs his sounds. Like there's there's shots in these movies where the the, the jazzy soundtrack that is playing, there are instrumental. Uh, hits that are timed to the blinking traffic lights or the or the the broken highway lines as that are driving by he's just i i what i find even like there's no there's no plot in those moments to be served at all it's just he's like the 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 ways that things look the the his observational nature i guess of like how these things sort of weirdly line up and synchronize with each other um and we're just gonna we're gonna we're just gonna riff on that for a bit. Like the that that to me is probably where I find the most joy. I think in yeah in in his movies as a whole is just like hey we're just gonna watch this traffic light blink while you know music is synchronized to it. That is there's almost like a weird like Agnes Varda resonance with some of her stuff in like the Gleaners and I when she's just like oh check out this like moving camera lid or whatever. I'm going to film that for a few seconds. Um, That's a yeah. great comparison to make. I didn't think about that. Uh, and I've been slowly kind of building up my, um, my Varda watching, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a huge similarity there um, that, that both artists can find like the beauty in like light color shape and repetitive motion of something like a blinking light or, you know, the things that, that maybe this is as good a segue as ever to talk about, like as, as much as that occurs in Mon Uncle, I think the next film we're going to talk about is kind of generally regarded as the pinnacle of Tati's filmmaking and certainly the pinnacle of the things that you're talking about. So if it makes sense, um, John, what do you think about jumping into our next film? 
Absolutely. Let's talk about playtime. kick off our conversation about playtime uh chris you had uh i want to i want to give you a small present um which is that uh after you watched playtime you tech or as you're watching playtime you texted me and saying is this a sequel to uh mononcle and at the time i was like i don't think it is um and then you noted that the mononcle ends with uh mr hulo getting on a plane uh, or going to the airport um and that playtime opens with uh, an airport scene at which Mr. Hulo is present. Um, you know who doesn't use that specific point, but agrees with you broadly that this is a sequel? Terry Jones from Monty Python. Oh. Because, in, because in the <laughs> intro, uh, it, so on the Criterion edition of Playtime uh, in the box set, they have, uh, there's in the special features, there's an intro by Terry Jones where he talks about how, he, the words he uses are that, Playtime picks up where Mon Uncle left off, where the old world is dead, and now the the the, the now it's just hyper hyper modern consumerist world is what Playtime is, which is again Mon Uncle was a if there was a an undercurring theme underneath the silliness was uh, was that how the the new world was replacing the old one, and in the in Playtime is almost all um, is almost all brand new shiny. Uh, modern life except for a couple of tiny spots here and there where you see reflections literally reflections of the old world uh so i wanted to give that to you that uh, <laughs> terry jones uh broadly agrees with your point so well done i am so delighted to have shared an original thought with uh, the late great terry jones even though um i do have the criterion box set and just in the rush i watched the terry jones intros for the first films and by the time i got to mon uncle and um the play time and traffic i just like i just got to get these films done just let's just watch the film let's just watch the film and keep going uh that is wonderful you also when we were talking about this you made a brilliant uh comparison to uh Prague rockers dream theater uh who for a number of albums would end kind of on the same chord that they would open with on the next album. And, and when I had said sequel, we had talked through, I, I don't mean like a legit narrative sequel because we've already talked about the unimportance of narrative or, or plot uh, in the Tati films, but I did think it was interesting that they kick Hulo off and put him on an airplane because they're going to get him a job in Paris. And Playtime opens with the airport scene and Hulo now in Paris having arrived on airplane, even though I think... This is nine years later, John, if I'm not mistaken, from Mon Uncle. Yeah, this is uh, 67, okay. and Hulo is 58, so yeah. Wow. Yeah, uh, very interestingly, in it an aged Hulo as well. Not that he was ever young. I think we talked about he was in his 40s <laughs> for uh, Joie de Fête <laughs> when we when we briefly discussed the hotness factor of uh, Monsieur he Hulot. He is hot in Joie de Fête. Uh, or Joie de Fête. Um, he, he, he is attractive and your response was he's in his 40s. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> he said, I just want to, hey look, as a guy in his 50s, I wanted to point out that he wasn't like a like a spring chicken. <laughs> I yes. was happy you that try, you were, you were commenting on his me. You were trying to be like, see, old 
older people can be hot. Older too. people can be can be good good looking. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, I love that uh, we're uh, that I, I I have some agreeers <laughs> to my not so original but still original to me idea watching these films. Sounds good. All right, what is playtime? Okay, well, playtime is a Okay, if you think of, like, again, using our primary reference point of Mr. Bean, uh, Mon Oncle uh, feels like a, still feels like a Mr. Bean, or it feels like a movie where he is, the, Mr. Hulot is the central character. Even if he's not, like, he, you're not always with him. You're often not with him, but he is, he does sort of occupy sort of a central, uh, he does occupy sort of a, something of a central part, uh, uh, plot uh, in the movie. Um, and, uh, and sort of, he, he does act as sort of a glue that sort of connects a whole bunch of different characters. Um, and as in situations, even if he's not, even if you're not like, you never have like a full close up on what he's doing and, and, and any of that stuff, he's always part of a larger scene, right? Playtime takes similar thoughts and concerns and all that sort of underlying stuff that we talked about in the last half. And then basically widens like without losing any of the detail um widens the scope and basically makes it, it's basically a where's waldo movie where you're trying to find mr hulo uh where there's just an incredible amount of detail happening in any single one particular shot people coming and going going on their routines whether they're trying to sell you stuff at a trade show or whether you're a tourist at the airport um you know working in a kitchen uh and just everyone, like, I, I was some some other movies that I was thinking of when I was thinking about this. Like, what what do I respond to about some of this stuff? Is I'm thinking about like the old epics, like your Ben Hur's, where you're going to achieve a scale of filmmaking, not by I mean, yes, there's trickery involved, but also sometimes you just have to put a few hundred people in front of a camera and get them to do the same thing at the same time, and that shit always works for me. And I feel like playtime is is to in a, in, a, in combination of like especially in service of what is like you know a comedy the the again the just sheer galaxy brained effort to put something like this together in service of something that is silly where you're basically trying to like dig through a Where's Waldo book to try and find all of the silly uh, like tiny plot threads that keep going through. Um, uh, that is the experience of watching playtime and the first, and yeah, I went back to my old, uh, my first letterbox review for when I watched the first time I was like, it took me a long time to f even figure out what I was watching because there's so much of the movie takes place in these like larger crowd shots, um, where the intended focus of any particular image or scene that you're watching isn't obvious. Cause there's people doing stuff in all corners of the screen. Um, the um so that's um if 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 mon uncle is sort of like i think you're right the the pinnacle of the monsieur hulo centered movies and i think it is then playtime is sort of the like ga uh, the like galaxy brained next step where he's not even a part really of the movie anymore or he or he he is but just like in a much more uh, reduced capacity. Yeah. And he had, um, I, I, I had read that by the time this movie took years to make. And then as he was, 
filming it, he kind of realized he was getting a little tired of doing Hulot, so he kind of scaled back his participation. I I think if 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 Mon Uncle is the pinnacle of the Hulot character, Playtime is the pinnacle of Tati as a filmmaker. I, I think it is everything blown up to galaxy, you know, wide scope and scale. Even if the narrative through line is even thinner here, like which I think is a plus in the, this case. He he almost doesn't care about a plot at all. He really just cares about, and the uh, the film is very cleverly structured into basically six sequences. Each sequence kind of almost being a standalone comedy in and of itself. There there is. Um, I'll, I'll shoot back here real quick. There is the airport uh, opening. Uh, then and and Hulo is ostensibly kind of the through line to connect these segments together. He gets off the airport. He's going for a job. Um, he's got the again in my brain the piece of paper that was given to him by his brother in law. He arrives at the offices and then there is an entirely new set of comedic um, sequences there. Uh, then goes from there to the trade exhibition, uh, where there is a whole set of things there. Then we go to an apartment complex because one of the kind of key through lines that binds the sketches, I don't want to call them even sketches, that, that bind the, the, the components together is Hulo is seeing a bunch of, like randomly seeing a bunch of his old war buddies that bring him into a situation and then hilarity ensues. So from the trade exhibition, um, we go to the apartment complex where one of his friends takes him to meet his family. Um, then from there, we go to probably the centerpiece of the entire film, which is the restaurant sequence. Uh, and then from there to one of the points that you were making, I, I know they do this more in traffic as well, but then to the end where you get to the carousel of, of cars and just how the traffic becomes this almost beautiful kind of musical elegy to the film that you just saw. Um, I love that. I love that we've kind of almost abandoned plot altogether. If there's any plot, it's that basically over the course of a day, um, day or day and a night, and then a, a morning again. It's really hard to track like time. Here. I, I actually <laughs> did. I actually was a bit more mindful of that this time, and I think that it is a full. It's a full day it's to a the full next day. morning. Yeah, because which I think, especially given the repetitive. Uh, uh, nature of every single person's actions in every single part of this movie. I think it makes sense to have because because the 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 movie starts at the airport where they where the the American tourists and uh, Mr. Hulo get off and then they go about their day, go through everything, and then the movie ends with the tourists and Mr. Hulo get going back to the airplane to to leave. Um, it's like everything that happens is just like we we come in, we go do a crazy day full of weird nonsense, and then we leave the next and i i want to make a a, a a keen distinction to what you just said um because i i think that's one of the things that i found remarkable about playtime they don't all go back to the airport because monsieur hulu does not go back to the airport right there's the gag at the end where she gets on the so ostensibly the film is about these it, it's about this girl who is traveling with this american tourist group in in, in france and she consistently interacts with hulu then at the end of the movie um 
spoiler for the end of the movie, although you can't really spoil this movie <laughs> you at couldn't all. Spoil this like at all. not even if you try, if you related the entire movie, you could not spoil this movie. Um, Hulot gets her a gift uh, because they had had this night, they had danced, they had made a connection. Um, and there's one particular moment that I'll talk about later when we talk about some of our favorite scenes. But at the end, he goes to get her a gift, um, but her bus is leaving to go back to the airport. So he can't get out because of a gag about the rotating turnstile to leave the store. So he gives it to another guy to go run and give to her and she gives it to her. So she leaves without him. Right. And she doesn't even know that it's from him. She's just like, oh, someone gave me this gift. How how interesting. And there's like, this is what I find beautiful about Tati as a filmmaker. Any other film that did this, like there is a clear shot. And I, I think Tati does this knowingly. She opens up the gift and she's seated at the window. So you can clearly see the outside as she's driving. Any other filmmaker would have had her look out the window and seen Hulot. Or had Hulot chase and, and just miss as the bus goes away. Tati films none of that. Uh, you never see Hulot again. He just kind of walks out of the store and kind of walks away, doesn't look for the bus. Um, she never sees him. She never finds out who it's from. There is no follow-up. And it's this, such a, for a movie that does not really care about through lines or arcs, it just is really more concerned with, I think, feeling and images and like what those, what those images make you feel. He beautifully uh, draws this kind of hopeful, um, this, 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 this hopeful feeling that is a mixture of love and affection, not only for a person, but for a city and for a time and for an experience. And, it is one of the most beautiful endings I've ever seen in a film. Uh, and I love that he does it in a way that I don't think any other filmmaker would have done it. I'll, I'll tell you about my favorite. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Appreciate, the, <laughs> appreciate that. Um, I'll tell you my favorite through line watching it this time was um, how like once Tati gets to the office or once uh, Hulo gets to the offices, he's supposed to go there for a meeting. So he's supposed to meet someone. And uh, through comical hijinks, it, uh, he he loses track of him. Well, the guy who's supposed to t find him throughout, again, this is like everything else, it's never called attention to and you have to be like actively watching to see what happens. But this guy basically spends the rest of the, anytime he's on screen, he is looking for Mr. Hulot because he's supposed to have this meeting. And there are just an insane number of people that Tati puts in the movie who look <laughs> like him, but are not him. So he keeps on running into all these different like fake Mr. Hulots. And um, there's, there's one just insanely inspired bit where, that when he when Hulo goes from the offices across the street to the trade uh uh to the trade exhibition, he sees the guy that he's supposed to meet. In the reason he goes to the trade exhibition is because he, he sees the guy in the building next door. But what he doesn't see is that's actually like several layers of reflection. Of reflection. And the guy is actually to the guy is actually like two feet to his left, and if he looked left, he would see it, but he doesn't. Uh, and and because of the weird reflectiveness in the glass, he thinks that the guy's in the next building over. Um uh and this carries through to the uh the apartment scene when he's hanging out with his friends on the and like the the thing with the apartment scene, which is probably like technically from a technical perspective, might be my actual favorite because it's it the 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 apartment sequence is it's mostly set across two apartments but sometimes you get four like two by two and in one and everything is taking place from 
outside the like you're wa- you're watching the action you're watching from inside. the street you're watching from the street you hear the street sounds you don't actually hear any of the conversations happening inside uh again you know another ma- mark for tati as observer but on the left hand side you have uh hulo and his friends in their apartment and they're watching tv facing right um on the wall there on the right hand uh, on, on the apartment to the right you have people watching tv uh, on the left-hand wall. So it looks like they are looking at each other. And at a certain point, the guy who, who has been looking for Hulo this whole time comes into that apartment. And you can see from the wide shot, um, again, do see this on as big a screen as possible uh, to get the, all the gloriousness. The guy who hurt his nose and uh, trying to find Hulo, you can actually see that they're in the next room from each other, looking at each other, except you can't see him because of the wall of the apartment. Yeah. Um, we need to stop for a second because I need to call out so many things in what you just talked about. First of all, uh, the scene where they mistake each other in the reflections, I think that might be with one or two exceptions, that is my favorite gag in the entire film. <laughs> it is yeah. it is so perfectly executed. Um, so thank you for bringing that up because I might have forgotten. And as soon as you said it, I felt my whole face kind of glow like, oh, my God, that was because there are literally there there are probably hundreds of gags in this movie. Um, but that one is by far one of my favorite. And it ties into you had made brief mention of it. But one of my favorite things that happened in the film are the reflections like when uh she opens the door in this ultra modern paris but the door opens and it reflects um at one point it reflects the eiffel tower there's another point when a window reflects the arc de triomphe right um and then there is a incredible probably the best gag of that is at the end when the winch the window washer is moving the window in and out and it makes it look like the bus of the american tourists is actually like a carnival ride and it goes up and down and every time it goes up and down they like you can hear them going it's it's i mean technically brilliant um but the other thing i wanted to call out in that apartment sequence um like you nailed everything that makes it so incredible and i i it was in my head but i couldn't verbalize the tati as as observer which i think is one of the calling cards of of everything that he does but I loved that through line with with that guy who pr- probably is a stronger through line with Hulot than the American girl tourist does, even though at the end it focuses more on on that. But I also love in that gag, not only are they looking at e- each other, they're seemingly interacting with each other, even though there's the invisible wall because of the way that Hulot shoots it. There is the point where the guy with the broken nose starts to take off his um, his shirt and his suspenders. And in the other apartment, it's, it's Hulot and and the family with the girl. And at that moment, they're all facing the television set, although it looks like they're facing that guy taking off yeah, his yeah, suspenders. Yeah, it looks like he's doing a shit show. <laughs> and, yeah. and, they sh- and they shoo the girl upstairs because they don't want her to see what's going on. It, it is just, it's level upon level of uh, trickery like that. And it is, it is wonderful. Um, I also I wanted say- to just briefly call out before you continue, the more you talk about it, it is making my appreciation for the film go up. So I may, I may have to re-rate <laughs> by the time this episode's over. I, I, I'm not going to, all I'll say is that I had a thought that I might be able to get that to happen. So I am glad, uh, I'm not to force any, not to force anything on you, but I, I did have a wonder if I could get my exuberance to sort of rub off on you. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, before we get to the, I, I think that 
the like a good chunk of this movie is at the restaurant so i think we probably should uh spend some time on it but i do want to say that bef- the that that art like while the end of the movie focuses more on the uh, on the girl in the present uh the arc with the guy who is looking for him does actually resolve because yeah. before he goes into the restaurant he actually does run into him uh and they actually is it, do is it at the beginning of the restaurant or the yeah. end of the restaurant no, it's, it's at the beginning it's the beginning it's okay. beginning of the restaurant before he acts like you've you've seen some stuff happen at the restaurant but hulo's arrival at the restaurant is delayed because while he's waiting to go into the restaurant he actually runs into that guy and so then they go to the drugstore i think for a bit there's a gag with like the green light making the food look bad yeah. or whatever uh and then but and then before you you get to the restaurant which is again a huge part of the of of all the movie but he does actually get to resolve that by actually like connecting with him at a certain point so i uh i, I like that there's a payoff for that oh absolutely but it's a but again like the like the end of the movie with the american tourist it's, it's, a, it's understated it's very understated like they meet each other oh i finally found you i've been looking for you for for all day really and they just kind of walk off talking and it's just it's it's a great great ending as as far as the like reflections and like there's a there's an insane amount of glass based humor in this movie. I think one of my favorite ones is actually at the beginning where uh, the the two people are talking to each other and one offers the other a cigarette and he go he leans in and the guy has to stop him and say no 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 this is a glass window you have to go to the door so they have go over to the door where he opens it and then lights a cigarette because the again just the like we can talk about how this is like making fun of you know this this stuff but like it is especially you know if this is made in the uh in the 60s and we're here in 2023 like this doesn't feel this doesn't feel modern anymore this like this is but but i'm always i'm also a sucker for people's like vision of the future like old yeah. visions of the future right and this very much fits into that sort of like very clean uh everything is just prim and proper hyper for for, for that time frame and uh, it's like the jetsons kind of retro yeah. future yeah jetsons is a very great description i mean the like tati built a fucking city like he built his own little miniature city to make this movie. It's called Tativille because there was no real place that he could use for that long. And no movie studio was big enough to do what he wanted to do. So he actually just built a miniature city to shoot everything. This is why that like, I mean, the legacy of this movie, aside from its artistic and creative ambitions and brilliance is that it bankrupted him. Uh, and that uh, he like, <laughs> there's a way in which this was ruinous to him, but, the reason it's ruinous is because the the size and scale and scope of how he was able to actually just build a chunk of city just to shoot his movie is uh, like you, th- that would be insane for an American director to do, let alone someone, uh, anyone outside of uh, yeah. an American Hollywood studio system with less resources. The, the and, and the set is gorgeous. It makes almost no like like it doesn't try to be realistic, although I think. And maybe you know this because I know you watched a lot more of the features than I did. Um, the exterior. So I, I was always looking at when they leave the um, the Royal Garden, the restaurant, to go to the drugstore. It looks like they're outside and there are buildings and everything. But I think that's actually the set. That's still part of the set, isn't it? So in addition to actual buildings, they also built a bunch of like facades for scale oh. just so that they could like get, present the illusion of like it's not – not every building is he didn't build like an insane number of skyscrapers uh but he did have like a few or he did build a few buildings and then for everything else would just strategically like again 
hit, like he before he was a filmmaker, he he worked as a framer. So like the man knows how to make an image. And this is and 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 everything in playtime is just like, okay, well, what can we do for real? And when we can't do it for real, how can we fake it? And so he would build these like miniature versions of the build of the fronts of buildings and then position them so that you couldn't tell the difference that it wasn't a real thing. Uh, it's, it's gorgeous. And it, and and it's and even when you know it's it's not real, it's still beautiful. Like there are how many times did you stop because you caught that like in the cubicle scene for example. Some of those people aren't real people, they're just paintings of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And in the airport, in the airport scene when the airplane goes by and it's the tail, that is clearly just a piece of wood that someone is literally just kind of moving in an empty <laughs> in an empty box it's it, like i said like the the parallels to like or not even parallels the things that wes anderson would learn from these movies <laughs> like are 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 many <laughs> many and varied um but it's gorgeous it, it is it, even if you don't are not a fan of the film, which again, I was, and now I'm growing to, you know, love even more. You have to give it up for that incredible set. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And, uh, I think that I, I think to push into a sort of our, not, not to wrap it up, but sort of, uh, put into sort of the last thing I really want to make sure we spend some time on is the restaurant sequence, because it is roughly half of the movie. Um, this is, uh, it's never like like anything in this movie it's never telegraphed what is specifically going on but it seems like this is a restaurant that is uh just in the process of opening um because it is there are so so much of what happens in this sequence is that uh things are still being built as it is being operated like they're building the metaphorically speaking they're building the plane while they're flying it yeah um and uh and Maybe it's just recency bias, but having just watched the bear, my my thought this time around watching it was, man, what if the bear was slapstick? Like that is, <laughs> what, what if it was a slapstick comedy instead of like a harrowing drama where I want to claw my eyes out at almost every single moment? Like it is, uh, uh, every everything everything breaks, uh, everything goes wrong. They they they're supposed to have fifty people and uh, and like more than a hundred show up, so they run out of food. Um, just every there's there's gags about like how there's one plate of fish that is brought to a table. They salt the fish, but then they get called away. And so then someone else comes along, sees the fish, they salt the fish, and then the people leave. And then eventually the fish gets passed on to someone else. And so like this, the fish gets keeps perpetually getting salted, and no one eats it ever. <laughs> that was probably my favorite gag. But there's so many, and I know that there was a specific thing you were drawn to. In so there sequence. are two. So I think we got to talk about so many things happen in the restaurant. Like, and the great thing is because, and I, I have the restaurant maybe firmly in mind because it's part of the reason why I had to watch playtime over three nights. I watched the entire restaurant sequence twice because I had forgotten so much of it when I had to rewatch it from its entirety again because I had stopped halfway through. It's, it's almost an hour in length, just that sequence. But it does have my favorite gag of the entire thing, which is the recurring thing. It starts with Hulo breaks the door. And then he's holding on to the to the door handle, and then people treat him like a door. They're so oblivious to what's going on that they open and close Hulot's arm as a door, which is 
brilliant. That, that's that's a great gig. Love but it. then the gag keeps going because then his his buddy from the army, who is the doorman, he has to keep doing it and because he feels like it's the only way to keep up appearances. He notices when it happens to Hilo, he's like, oh, maybe people won't know that the door is broken. So he's constantly having to shift and run Just, between yeah. doors oh. to pretend to be a door. It's it's great. Uh, so I wanted to call that out as, as probably my favorite gag. Um, we do also need to talk briefly about the fact that um, old man Sean Astin is in this movie. It's so wild. As I called him. He is, uh, th- and it's not him, obviously. Um, it is a blustery uh, older American with his wife. And I don't know if it was an actually an American actor because everything is ADR'd, so they might have just got a guy to dub the voice in English. But he's like this huge blowhard who then later on, because of other gags, there are, I'll call out two gags, uh, the chairs in the restaurant are so terrible. They're like these spiked W tridents that all the men who sit on them get the W kind of imprinted onto their suits. So that's one gag. The chairs are terrible, and now as these people are dancing, you can see the W. Later on, um, this guy who's uproariously drunk is, is is kind of making the party happen, and he's trying to jump up and get this like hanging fruit for his wife, and he can't quite reach it. And Hulot comes over and offers to do it, and rips down an entire part of the restaurant. Which <laughs> later on, then the guy, the American guy, he becomes the doorman for like an exclusive after club within the restaurant itself, and within the only specific way- part of the restaurant that was destroyed. Yeah, to, <laughs> to, to be the clear. part. That's, and everyone is having a blast in that side, but he'll only let you in if you're one of the people who have the W on your back from the chairs. So, like, the way that these jokes work like that, it, I mean, that's where the brilliance of this is. There's the part where, to your point, they said that they have no more hot food. It's only cold food, so they want to take down the menu. And the menu is stuck to this, like like wired statue of a chef that looks like a person and they can't get the menu off the person. So they carry the entire statue out. But when they carry it out, it looks like they're carrying a dead person. So everyone is looking mortified that they thought they, one of the chefs died and they're carting him out of the restaurant. I mean, like gags like that are just, they're, they're just sublime. <laughs> did, did you notice when they were complaining about the heat and that the, the step, the little model of the plane the was like melting? <laughs> I was going to say that was such like such a small touch. And then when they, and then when they turn, when they managed to like figure out how to turn the AC back on, then like everyone's acting like they're in a fucking wind turbine yeah. and just like struggling <laughs> well, to not I, be blown I, I think away. they're blowing like a jet engine on this one woman's back because there's just the shot of this woman and her skin is just flapping like, like crazy. <laughs> there's also the great moment where, uh, I mean, nothing works in the restaurant. The stairs don't work. These lights are supposed to light. They don't work up. The chairs are are, are disaster. Everyone keeps ripping and having problems with their clothes. So they are constantly going to this one guy who's sitting outside and changing. Like, can I can I swap bow ties with you? Can I swap shoes with you? Can I swap jackets with you? At the end, he literally looks like a derelict who's been out in the streets for years because he's had to donate his clean clothes to all the other waiters. That's just a great. It's not huge, but it just keeps happening. So throughout the course of the restaurant sequence, you can gauge the amount of mayhem by how disheveled the guy is over the course of the 45 minutes. Um, such a lovely sequence. And, and and then probably my other favorite there is just uh, the drunk guy who keeps coming in um, and then coming out because every time he gets drunk, he looks up and he sees the sign point back into the restaurant. So he just follows the glowing lights and goes into the restaurant. There is a second drunk guy 
uh, they they make a habit of anytime someone gets drunk and falls down, they like kick him out. Well, this one guy falls off of his stool, and rather than kick him out, they turn the stool upside down and they put him in the stool. So he's like a little man in a cage, and now he can't fall. He's just swaying in the stool. Uh, it, it's again, it's it's not like a brilliant gag, but it is so cleverly done. The timing is so perfect. Um, it's a delight. It's a delight. <laughs> I, I think that the yeah the 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 final sequence with the with all the cars driving around in sequence, um, a, a lot of the juice in that scene for for me does come to just sort of like the synchronicity of how everything like is put together by Tati as a you know as 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 a, as a framer as a as a, as a filmmaker, um, but there is uh, but other than that it, it's 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 sort of like a coda to really the 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 fin- the big climax which is the the restaurant scene but i will say that there is a gag in that sequence where a sponge ends up on a, a sponge there's one table with sponges on it for sale and it ends up on the floor tati kicks the uh, accidentally kicks the sponge over and it lands in front of a display cheese with cheese on it yeah he picks up the sponge assumes it fell from the cheese uh display and puts it the the sponge back on the 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 cheese thing i don't know why but that that fucking had me insane because they don't. I don't yes. think they pay it off afterwards. I expected someone to like. I, I expected someone to like actually eat the sponge, thinking it was cheese, and they, they don't go that way. But that's not but Tati's intent. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's it's one of my other favorite sequences, and it just speaks to, like, it's funny the way that you framed it. Hulot accidentally kicks this sponge, and it lands in front of the cheese counter, except that we know this is a film. So what actually happened is Jacques Tati so expertly timed the kick (laughs) to be perfect to make that gag work. Like that to me is why I love that particular scene so much. It is so perfectly done. It looks so accidental. The sponge moves so perfectly. It literally lands like it hit a mark. And we didn't talk about my favorite kind of that moment toward the end of the restaurant uh, because it's not a gag. Um, It's one of the again just like the emotional satisfaction that you got that they paid off the through line between the guy with the broken nose trying to find Hulot um, there is also a brief sequence played for comedic effect where the American tourist is trying to get a picture of a woman at a flower shop and every oh, time God. she tries to it, it, it someone comes in into frame and some of it's really funny some of it's just kind of like you know now they're just being annoying and this woman can't get her her picture that is beautifully beautifully played off at the end now that she's with Hulot, it's almost effortless. Like you're at that magic part of the morning where twilight and dawn are kind of merging. There's a little bit of light. The woman is there setting up shot. Um, and with the assistance of Hulot, she's able to get the perfect picture that she had been trying to get. The thing that more than anything else is going to remind her of her time in Paris. And I love that that moment is so quiet and, and, and puts a bow on that on that particular line through the movie. Especially since, like, once you get to the nighttime stuff, like the because the apartments and the restaurant sequences happen during the evening slash twilight hours of the day, um, and you don't really see her. Like, you th- like once you leave the offices in the trade exhibition, you don't see her again for like the second half of the movie. And then when when morning comes and you know everyone's leaving their you know leaving the restaurant and some people. Uh, are going back to the airport. Uh, you follow up to see with this woman, and she's still trying to get that fucking picture. Uh, I just love the implication that she's potentially been out all night trying to get this done and has not been successful. And she finally, after a good solid, you know, day of effort, is finally able to take the one single picture <laughs> she wants to take. 
It's very nice and also hilarious. Tati knows that you need resolution, right, in order to make the comedy. Like tension without resolution isn't comedy. You gotta you gotta have that 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 resolve. Uh, well, damn you, sir! Gorgeous, gorgeous movie, uh, and the discussion only enriched it for me. So, I may have to recontemplate my positioning on playtime. I, uh, I, you know what? I will, I will not attempt to uh, push you further and just accept the gift uh, horse that I've been given. So thank you. <laughs> All right, as always, to finish off this episode, we're going to do some film recommendations. Chris, why don't you get started? Yeah, I've only got one. Um, December's been a little uh, tight with movies. I mean, mainly. We're recording this on the 17th. I think the only films I have actually seen have been Tati films, uh, which is not bad. <laughs> and I do recommend, um, if I were to recommend any other than the two that we talked about today, it would be uh, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday um, from 1953. Uh, really just nice and pleasant, a lot of cool jokes. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about the reason why I am maybe foolishly diving back into the world of Death Stranding, the video game by uh, Hideo Kojima. Um, I had got it when it first came out, played for probably like 10, 15 hours, um, most of which, yes, it's true, it's just a lot of walking and delivering packages, so I'm a glorified mailman. Uh, I stopped, but over the last couple of days, I have gotten back into it. And the reason why I've gotten back into it is because of the singular uniqueness and weirdness of the science fiction series Scavenger's Reign, which is on uh, Max or HBO. If you have home box office, I'm sure it's on all of those things. But it is an HBO exclusive animated um, television show. The first season concluded a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the vibe is... Not the same as Death Stranding, but there is a uniqueness of vision uh, in the way that this show realizes its alien planet. So, ostensibly, Scavenger's Reign, um, I'll read this very quickly. It is uh, an American adult animated science fiction drama. It, it is an adult. Don't let your kids watch it unless you, know, you talk to them first. Um, television series created by Joseph Bennett and Charles Hutner for Max, based on their 2016 short film Scavengers. And the series follows the survivors of a damaged interstellar cargo ship, the Demeter 227, who are stranded on the planet Vesta, which is an alien planet bustling with life. Um, and I'll kind of leave it there. Uh, the show is really about um, the survivors from this crashed spaceship. The spaceship is very much like, uh, I can't remember the movies now, but there are tons of them. It's one of those ships that's carrying a uh, you know thousands of people that are going to colonize another planet. Um, so uh, it there's a, a, a mishap in space and a bunch of escape pods land on the planet Vesta. And we follow um, separately at first until eventually the season draws them together. Um, three kind of survivor pods. Uh, the first one is uh, composed of um, Ursula and Sam. Sam is the was the the pilot of the Demeter, uh, and Ursula was one of the um, botanist kind of gardeners looking over that area. Um, and it is about their struggles as they think they're the only ones on the planet. Um, Sam is able to call for an emergency, even though the Demeter is in space largely exploded, he's able to call for a crash land, um, a, con a controlled crash landing so they can reach the Demeter and uh, hopefully um, awaken the surviving passengers and find a way to get off the planet. 
It then follows Ozzy uh, and her um, robot Levi uh, as they think they're the only people on the planet and they're just trying to make do and survive until they see the Demeter come crashing down onto Earth and they go to investigate it. And then finally, there is um, uh, my brain is going to Cayman. Uh, the last person who may have caused the accident that you know precipitated all the events at at Demeter, and it's about his story as he very early on meets up with um, a life form that is has got very nefarious plans for how it works with. Um, other living beings. Uh, so the story follows the three of them on their individual adventures as they converge on the Demeter uh, and attempt to get off of it. And it's, uh, it is one of the best shows that I have seen in years. Uh, it's very short. Uh, it, it, I think it's, uh, I'm trying to remember, it's 12 episodes. They're a half hour each. Um, the closest I can get to an animation style, um, there are definite shades of kind of like Mobius, if you've ever read The Lost Inkle or any of the work that Mobius did for Heavy Metal. Um, it's a lot of that. There is a cartoonist and comic writer called Brandon Graham. Uh, he's done some incredible science fiction work, and, and that's what it reminds me of kind of visually. But the but the uniqueness and the variety of these alien life forms and the fauna and how they work, so much time was put into the biologies and evolutions of these plants and these alien beings. You get to like understand literally entire life cycles of species that were created just for this. So it's almost like when I was a kid, we used to get all these... I'll, I'll, I'll use a, a less obscure re reference than I was going to. Uh, if you were ever into D&D &D as a kid, you probably had a copy of the Monster Manual, and you would look through that Monster Manual and the illustrations in there, and you would think about, man, look at this thing. How did this, how did they come up with this, and what does it do? And, you know, if I'm going to use this, you know, what's it going to be like? This this movie is, is th this, this show is like that 10 or 12-year-old kid opening that book and not only imagining all these aliens, but having the space and the creativity to flesh out birth to death, what these life cycles look like. It is, it is stunning for that. And then to boot, there's also this very human drama uh, that kind of ends on this beautiful note. Um, and I haven't heard that there's a season two yet, but John, uh, this like hit me on a fundamental level. I, I loved it so much. And I, if anyone has the ability to go out and see this, I, I highly recommend it. The, you are the latest in an increasing line of people who are just uniformly high on that show in oh. a way that <laughs> makes me wish that I had access to it. Cause the, uh, yeah, like there, I have not heard a single person talk about it that wasn't just effusive in its praise. So this is uh, mildly frustrating, but mostly a, like exceedingly joy joyful. So I'm 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 glad that uh, you are continuing the trend of people telling me I should see it. So uh, should I get the opportunity, I will make uh, myself available post haste. Can't recommend uh, it enough. <laughs> uh, I have a. Uh, I have a couple of recommendations. Uh, I, while I enjoyed uh, Jour de Fête, uh, his first uh, directed uh, full-length film, uh, I know that you weren't as high on that. Um, and so what I'm going to recommend mostly for you is <laughs> uh, 
is uh, uh, L'Ecole des Facteurs, which translated means School for Postmen, is a short film that he directed. It was the first short film that he actually directed. Most of the stuff he did beforehand, he, uh, he was not directing himself. But a lot of Jour de Fête is actually stuff that he's repurposed from uh, School for Postmen. And uh, it is... Uh, so if you like the gags but don't like the plot uh, as much, you probably have a better time watching School for Postmen, which is much shorter. So... That is, uh, that's my first one. And then my second one uh, is not a Tati movie, but uh, as I mentioned, uh, I am a sucker for uh, the way that he designs his uh, movies. And if we want to talk about another movie that has someone spending most of the movie observing the behaviors of others, uh, looking at a giant uh, apartment building set with people in a bunch of different uh, windows doing different things, then there could be no finer example than Alfred Hitchcock's rear window. Uh, it just so happens that uh, that the Criterion's doing a big Hitchcock thing for the holidays, and it's been a few years since I've watched Rear Window, so I decided, fuck it, uh, I'm going to go watch it again. And uh, this should not surprise anyone, Rear Window is a masterpiece. It's still great. <laughs> I, uh, I could not possibly agree more on that sentiment it is if not it, it it alternates as my favorite hitchcock with like maybe one or two other films but i have a deep family connection to that it's the first one that i introduced my son to when he was young and he was um it was the first film where he was like terrified but in the way that as a moviegoer you want to be terrified, like you come away going, what an incredible experience. I never saw anything like this before, as opposed to daddy, why did you make me watch the man do the bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I don't know if I, I'd have to think if I try and get the kids to watch it, but uh, my entry into watching rear window was of course, the Simpsons episode where Bart, uh, where they get the pool and Bart, uh, can't be in the pool because he broke his leg. And so he ends up thinking that Flanders killed his wife. And so that's when they do the whole rear window thing, complete with uh, Jimmy Stewart sound alike uh, <laughs> for, for one gag. Um, and then my kids watch a ton of Simpsons. So that might be how I get them to watch it too. But uh, like, if, like, especially like the, I mean, Hitchcock is the master of suspense like that again, not surprising anyone, but like when, when the, when you spend like the vast majority of the movie, with Jimmy Stewart as this like observer from the behind the assistance. And when, when the guy finally looks and notices him, like when his girlfriend is like flashing the ring or whatever, so he can pay attention to it. And the guy catches him. And finally, uh, when Jimmy Stewart is finally beheld is like, like instantly goosebumps all the way out. Just, <laughs> I, it fucking rules. But yeah, that's probably going to do it for us for this episode. Uh, Chris, I'm glad that uh, you uh, were keen on doing uh, Tati and keen enough to let me talk you into liking it more. So uh, <laughs> I hope that your uh, I hope that your Christmas is able to resolve in a way that is perhaps uh, not quite as intensely frenetic as uh, as a Tati movie, and uh, hope that uh, you stay safe and sound. And we'll see everyone next time. Yeah, same to you, sir. Uh, I hope everyone has a great end of year and uh, we will see you again in 2024. So thanks very much. Happy New Year. Bye.